0: The words that they're leading us in, like I'm just going to read them so you guys can hear. But how accurately do they portray what we just got to celebrate with Christ? You hear, "Great is Thy faithfulness." Great is Thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I mean, all I have needed, Thy hand hath provided. Guys, like all, all you have needed, everything. His hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me and unto you and unto all of those who call upon the name of Jesus Christ. I mean, that is that is a blessing far greater than anything we can imagine, guys. And, and that blessing is what we have been kind of tracing the story of in the book of Exodus, which is where we're going to be this morning. Because you see as we're we're going through this book, it is... It's, it's really the story of God's people being formed, right? And so for you and for me, if, if we have put our faith in Jesus Christ, then, then it becomes our story as well, where we are seeing what has God done and physically taken us out of our, our slavery and our oppression, our persecution because of sin, and, and physically brought us into a new reality, into a life with him. It is total transformation which is it's it's amazing I, I mean honestly it, it maybe it sounds weird but I just I just sat and thought about that this week for a while and you guys may be like well you're a you're a pastor you have time in your week to sit and reflect and meditate on that but but honestly just getting to sit under the weight of what God has done for us really changes the way that you look at some things and so hopefully I, I'm gonna share a little bit of that hope with you guys this morning as we read through um, what might be one of the most interesting places of scripture, the plagues. Um, I know this may be passages you guys are more familiar with. We, We talk a lot about the 10 plagues in Sunday school because at least for little kids, it's fascinating, right, that God would do not only these miracles, but these very wild and very crazy miracles on display. Um, and we started this the last time we were in Exodus, which would have been two weeks ago because we, we were uh, reminding ourselves of the Christmas story in our service last week. We read the first plague. Today, as we cover Exodus chapter 8, we're going to see the second plague, the third plague, and the fourth plague. And we'll pause because the next chapters will contain the rest of the plagues. And, and as we do this, guys, I, I want to encourage you. I think sometimes when we come to this we focus on the plague itself, right like what is the actual thing that is is taking place and it's it's good and proper for us to do that um, although I don't know that we could comprehend the magnitude of what it would look like if this building and if our world was totally filled with frogs that would that would just be disgusting. but what God is doing in sending these plagues, what he is communicating, what you see going on in the hearts and minds of Moses and Pharaoh, this is what we're going to do our best to pay attention to in this because we are seeing God's restoration at work. And it, it means something to, to you and I. If we have given our lives to Jesus, if we have professed faith in him, it, it transforms something about who we are, which we get to see today. And I, I want to encourage you, if there are any who have not, you know, said, okay, yes, Jesus, I will, I will surrender my life to you. If, if that just still sounds like a weird concept, then, then may, as you're listening to this today, hear what, what God is trying to reveal to you and who he is and what he's doing. We're going to read chapter eight. And guys, I'll go ahead and give you the two things that we're going to, we're going to watch for and we're going to see today. God reveals his power and his presence Beautiful, magnificent things that, that totally change us, guys. He reveals his power and his presence as he works in his restoration. So this is, uh, we actually have to read verse 25 from chapter 7. I didn't skip it the last time. It just, sometimes the chapter divisions in the Bible don't fall exactly where the, it would have made sense to for the text. So I'll read 7:25 and then we'll go through chapter 8. So this is uh, Exodus 7, 25. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. Then the Lord said to Moses, so this, this is now chapter 8. Then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and into your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you and on your people and on all your servants. And the Lord said to Moses, Now say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals, over the pools, and make frogs come up onto the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt And the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people. And I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, Okay, be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and for your servants and for your people, that the frogs be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. And Pharaoh said, Tomorrow. Moses said, Be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. Then the frogs shall go away from you and your houses and your servants and your people. They shall be left only in the Nile. So Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs as he had agreed with Pharaoh. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out in the houses, the courtyards, and the fields, and they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, okay, say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth, that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand, and with his staff, he struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. And then the magician said to Pharaoh, hey, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, "'Rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water, and say to him, "'Thus says the Lord, "'Let my people go, that they may serve me. "'Or else, if you will not let my people go, "'behold, I will send swarms of flies.'" on you and your servants and your people and into your houses. And the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. Swarms of flies. But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall happen. And the Lord did so. There came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and into his servants' houses throughout all the land of Egypt was ruined by the swarms of flies. So then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, "'Go, sacrifice to your God within the land.' But Moses said, "'It would not be right for us to do so, "'for the offerings we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God "'are an abomination to the Egyptians. "'If we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes,' "'Will they not stone us? "'We must go three days' journey into the wilderness "'and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he tells us.' "'So Pharaoh said, "'I will let you go sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness, "'only you must not go very far away and plead for me.' "'Then Moses said, "'Behold, I am going out from you, "'and I will plead with the Lord "'that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, "'from his servants and from his people tomorrow.' Only don't let Pharaoh cheat again by not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord. And the Lord did as Moses asked and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants and from his people. Not one remained, but Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. God, as we we hear your history coming to life, Lord, from your servant Moses as he's painstakingly taken the time to record this through your Holy Spirit. God, may we be able to see what you desire us, uh, what you desired for your people to know. God, that, that beyond just the, the mystical power of what is being done here, God, you are very intentional very careful in the work that you have undertaken, Lord, to to bring us back into a right relationship with you. God, I I pray that you would would clear out our distractions, that you would still our our hearts and our minds this morning, Lord, that we would be open to your spirit moving inside of us. Father, giving us your insight into your word and that we may truly, Father, be ready to follow you as you lead. In your name we holy pray. Amen. Guys, as we kind of move through this text, I, I think very clearly you see the power of God on display. And I, I want to invite you to see throughout this chapter, God's power shows up everywhere. One of the things that God does is he makes you and I right with him Is he reveals his power, who he is to us. You see how he's a couple of times in this chapter, he's declaring his authority before Pharaoh. You know, he he comes to Pharaoh and he says, let my people go, that they may worship me. And it's a direct kind of pointed barb at Pharaoh because here's Pharaoh sitting in earthly authority thinking, these are my people. Like I, I have them under my thumb. I can tell them to go do whatever they want. I treat them however I want. These are my people. And here God comes to him twice in this chapter, verses 1 and 2 and 20 and 21, where he says, Pharaoh, these are my people. You may have them under your thumb, but they are mine. Let my people go. And, and why? That they may worship me. God is declaring, establishing his authority above Pharaoh's. And then you see him powerfully work out, the plagues, which I would invite you, and and this is always dangerous as a pastor to do, but go ahead and close your eyes. Please do not fall asleep on me, but go ahead and close your eyes for a second because I I want you to, to picture what is taking place with the plagues. So you're in your house, and all of a sudden you start, you look out your window, and you just see the whole land is covered in frogs. all around you. I mean, maybe it's a townhome, so you've got your street in front of you or you're sitting out, you've got some acreage, but you just see everything around you is covered in frogs. And then all of a sudden, there's a frog in your living room. Then there's a frog in your kitchen. And then your whole house is covered in frogs. You open your cupboards, frogs. You open the fridge, frogs. You open the oven, frogs. And then you look at your arms and there are frogs. Like this, this is not just a... A, a nice idea. I mean it's think of how difficult it would be to live if the whole everything around you, including yourself, was covered in frogs. This this is what is taking place in, in the the second plague. Okay, then then you think about the third plague, and now now we've got the dust of the earth is covered in gnats. I mean, you think about how irritating gnats get. You know, you, you're constantly, you swat at them. They get in your eyes. It's tough to see. They, um, they, if you're like me, they, they fly into your mouth. You end up eating a couple every year unintentionally. But, but it's not just like there's a swarm of them. They, there's like a fog in the land and inside your own house and on your own skin because of how many gnats there are. And then you think gnats are bad. they I mean they're really they're not really that bad. They're pretty tiny. Then you get flies. And you guys know that that very distinct sound when you're you're sitting in your house and it's nice and quiet and then you hear a fly buzzing on the window. Except now your whole house is covered in flies to the point where you can't really see anything in front of you and if you step outside it's the exact same way there's like a it looks like a whole cloud has covered the area, which many of you guys have seen because we live in Christiansburg and Blacksburg and Radford, half the time when you leave your house in the morning, there's there's fog. But instead of it being a cloud, it's flies. You think about how impossible it would be to get anything done or just to live a normal, any kind of life with frogs or with gnats or with flies. I mean, you can you can open your eyes. But that is... That is powerful. I, I mean, I can't even fathom. I, in my mind, I've got some mental images of what that might look like. But you think about how, how powerful would, it, would God have to be in order to make something like this happen. And yet we know this is the same God that just spoke and life existed. He created by speaking. This is nothing to him. What a display of power that God is showing before Pharaoh. And, and it amazes me because you see, as he's doing this, that there are hearts that are being changed. Specifically, you see in, in verse 18, the magicians, they, they've been able to duplicate some of the signs and wonders that we saw two weeks ago. They were able to somehow produce frogs. I don't, I don't really have an explanation other than God must have allowed them by whatever they're doing to have success because here they are now with the gnats and they're saying, We can't do this. And they go to Pharaoh and they say, Pharaoh, I don't know if you're aware, we can't do this. Like this this God that Moses and Aaron keep telling you about, he is the real deal. This is the finger of God is literally what they tell Pharaoh in verse 19. And then it's also amazing, though, that with such a display of power, you see Pharaoh never relents. I would I would imagine and, and maybe you guys can too if I'm sitting in my house and I'm covered with fl- uh, flies or gnats or frogs that that'd be a pretty big enough indicator right that that maybe God was there uh, we did have an instance where in our house in North Carolina Abigail and the kids happened to be out of town and there was a yellow jacket in our house and I opened the, the blinds to swat at it, and I counted 22 yellow jackets inside the house on the window panel. Right? Now, that, that was when I decided it doesn't really matter if it says don't use raid in the house. The kids aren't going to be here for a while, and I need to take care of this. But, but even that, I didn't go through that whole episode and think, oh, maybe God is trying to tell me something, I, you know, whether it's get out of the house or what. Pharaoh sees not just 25 window jackets on a panel, all of this on display. Even, even sees, I love how, how Moses even asks him, tell me how you would like me to tell God to take this away. And Pharaoh sees the letters of his prayers answered, nothing. And I think what you, what you see in Pharaoh is what you see with us. That at the foundational level of our, our brokenness, what our sin does is it, it causes us to deny God's authority, right? Whether, whether it's over our life, whether it's over our world, we just, we don't like the idea of something, someone being in charge over, over me. And, and yet here is God repeatedly showing Pharaoh these magnificent acts of what his power is. And you see Pharaoh kind of initially, you know, maybe give the idea that he's starting to kind of respond. You see twice um, in verse eight, and then again in verse 28, he, he tells Moses and Aaron to plead for me, where he's saying, I need you to go before God and ask for this to be taken away. So it's almost like Pharaoh's starting to realize, okay, maybe God's power is a little bit greater than mine, and he has some rightful place over my life. But then you see every single time, as soon as there's relief, that's it. That's it for Pharaoh as far as acknowledging God's authority. And guys, this this idea of our our wrestling with God's rightful place as the authority over our lives where we we want something else in there. This this is what is talked about in scripture as idolatry. Where we've we've set something else up to be what we would give worth to, what we give glory to, what what we allow to to you know. To control our, our lives. And for a lot of us, that, that's ourselves, um, for, you know, you, but you can put anything in there. That's, that's kind of the, the theme of idolatry. You see this first in, in the garden in Genesis chapter 3 where, you know, Adam and Eve fall away from God because they say, well, but did God really tell us to do that? He didn't really mean that. They, they had the desire to be like God themselves to have that place of authority in their lives. And so they step into that world and immediately they have broken their relationship apart from God. And and it it just reveals what we also see here in the life of Pharaoh, where we haven't given God authority over our lives. We will not glorify him. We will not worship him. We will not give him the honor and recognition that he deserves in that part of our life. And and it's, it's why, I don't know if you guys picked up on this, but in our mission statement, right at the very beginning, we are a community on mission submitted to Christ. Because if we are going to glorify God as as individuals, but also as a church, guys, it begins very simply with giving God the place that he rightfully deserves in our lives. And I think it is fascinating because we see this and we go, how could Pharaoh you know, not give God the rightful place. If Pharaoh sees all of this going on and knows that this is clearly true, this is clearly something bigger at work, how could he not give God his rightful place? And, and guys, it reveals to us a truth that we see consistently in scripture, but I think we forget as Christians a lot today that knowledge does not directly translate to glory. Just because we know something about God to be, true just because we can mentally say, yes, I believe these things about Jesus Christ. Knowledge does not directly translate to glory. We, we feel like it should, right? You read Pharaoh going through this, we're like it, how do you not give glory, Pharaoh? But guys, knowledge does not directly translate to glory. But God does show what does translate to glory in this chapter where he always says, let my people go that they may worship me." There is something about being with God that leads us to glorify him in a way that simply acknowledging something or knowing something does not. And so for our church, just as we are looking to start small group discipleship in the coming months, what we are after is not just imparting knowledge, it's not just giving you guys more knowledge about scripture or what to do with scripture but it's it's reproducing man how do we glorify god in our lives we we know that from god's word we we learn about how to do that but more than about imparting knowledge how do we just give god glory with our lives that's what we're after um in our worship like when we're here guys we again it's it's not just a a transfer to knowledge and i realize it kind of seems counterintuitive when you know, I, I'm, I'm teaching from scripture, but really my goal is not just to make you go, oh, I hadn't thought about that from Exodus. It, it's to take and, and really just sit under the word of God and say, okay, God, if this is who you are and this is what you desire of us, what, what, is that, what does that look like? What does that mean? What is, how does that change who I am? And it means in our daily lives, guys, honestly, the, again, the goal is not just to get us to do something different or do something more. Just doing is going to wear ourselves out, right? We're not called just to do. We are called to glorify, to, to give God the rightful place in our lives. And so if it is true for us that knowledge doesn't directly translate to glory, I think we also have to be careful for our future as, as we're just measuring, man, what is growth? In the Christian life, what does growth in the church look like? Growth is measured by submission. So, if if knowledge doesn't directly translate to glory, we shouldn't be using knowledge as the standard of how mature am I necessarily in the faith, or, or you know, if I'm knowing more, then I'm necessarily growing more. I mean, yes, as we are growing with God, we are going to know Him more. We are going to know His Word more. So there is the correlation, and and it's such a fine line, but. Really, what we are after is seeing a life totally sold out for the Holy Spirit and saying, okay, God, whatever you would have me do today, let's go do it. And I realize that is quantitatively not something you can easily measure. Okay, my, my background is in engineering. My whole world revolved around being able to measure so that you could analyze and, and removing all the variables that you couldn't measure. Because if you can't measure it, then you can't. Evaluate it. So it, it, it feels counterintuitive. But guys, let me also put this to you as, as an encouragement this morning, okay? Especially if, if, if you guys, if there's people who are, are younger in the faith or newer in the faith. I, I'm not trying to tell you that the, the way we grow, you just pray more, just do more, just read your Bible more. The, these are things that God has given us to get to know him. What we are after is knowing him and being with Him in His presence so that we might give glory to Him and everything that we do. That, that is the life that, that we are after. And, and we pursue this because we realize that's not our default. That, that the core of who we are, our our unrighteousness, our sin, it doesn't want to acknowledge God's place in our lives. And this is why when we read as God is doing His restoration work, as he is preparing his people to deliver them, as he is working through these plagues, he is revealing his power. He is showing this is who I am, okay? But he's also showing them something else that I'll point out from the chapter two this morning, because God is, is not just on a power trip to get you to give your life to him so that he can, you know, lord it over you, do whatever he wants. We, we have a very skewed understanding of what it is to have power over someone. This, this is not the idea that we, we put on God because not only does he reveal his power, he reveals his presence. That if you look throughout the chapter, you see that God's desire is not just to take his people out of slavery in Egypt and put them in a different kind of slavery to him, but it is to free them to be with him. We see in verse 1 and verse 20, Again, God says, let my people go that they may serve me. And two weeks ago, we talked about how that word serve carries with it the connotation of worship. Where service, we think about service as doing something for somebody, which which is an aspect of service. But when service carries with it the connotation of worship, it talks about not just service in one area of our life, right? Because typically when we think about doing something for somebody, when we're done, we're done, right? Like if, if service to me is that picture for Abigail, right? Then once I have done the dishes, I'm done serving her, right? Because I have physically performed an act of service towards her doing something I know she's, she's not a fan of doing, then I'm done, but, but serve, in the Old Testament mindset, when it's when it has this idea of worship in it, it is it's not just like I do the dishes for Abigail. I do the dishes for, him and then I go, okay, what else? What else? You need me to do laundry? Okay, I'll do that. Okay, well, you you need me to sit and listen to you? Okay, I'll do that. You need me to, to to bathe the kids? Okay, I'll do that. It's it's an entire lifestyle oriented around something, not me. Okay, this this is the level of intimacy that that comes with worship, which is why it's so difficult to glorify something from a distance. I mean, maybe the closest you can get to glorifying something from a distance is you think about when you drive down the street and you see flags for different college or sports teams that aren't from that area. Uh, There's a guy over in Christiansburg that has a huge light display and on his front yard next to his VT logo is the Ohio State logo and the JMU logo. Like the, and he's he's nowhere near there, but that's about as close as you can get to giving glory or giving worth to something from a distance. That is not the type of worship that our God has called us to. This is also why you see at the end of the chapter, you see God reject Pharaoh's compromise. In verses 25 through 27, you see Pharaoh says, okay, you could go sacrifice to your God but do it within the land of Egypt. Don't, don't go out to the wilderness. Just work with me a little bit, Moses. I'll let you worship, but I know you really want to go. Don't, don't do that. And Moses straight up tells him, it's going to be an abomination, both to the Egyptians and to God, if we do this. It's going to be an abomination to the Egyptians because they're not going to understand what we're doing. It's going to look like we are offering our lives to something you, they don't understand. So their response is going to be to kill us. That's what Moses says. But Moses also points out, we have to do this as our God commanded. Because you think if God's goal is to move people into his presence, letting them worship him while they're still in the slavery of Egypt doesn't fulfill that. Guys, we're worshiping God on our terms when we're still... Content with the way we are apart from him. It does not accomplish what we think it does in in actually being in God's presence. So God, he's displaying his power because he desires to bring his people to be with him. You also see in the chapter, he's displaying his power. So not just his people know him, but that everybody knows him. It's, It's interesting in verse 22, you see God makes a distinction in the fourth plague that with the flies, the flies are only going to be in Egypt. They're not going to be where in the land of Goshen, which is where all of the Israelites tended to live. This, this would be like if God put a whole plague on the new river Valley. And then one day he said, but Christiansburg is not going to get the flies. Blacksburg and Radford totally covered, but Christiansburg is is going to just be totally fly free. You know, And you think at that moment, if you're in Christiansburg, you're thinking, there must be something different about this place because we don't have the flies and everybody else does. And if you're living in Blacksburg or Radford, you're looking at Christiansburg going, what do they have that they have no flies there that I'm sitting covered in flies? This, this distinction that God puts, he specifically says in verse 22, it's so that you may know, you Pharaoh, you Egypt, you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. He says, not only are you going to know that I am God, but you are going to know I am right there. I am here. My my presence is not this ethereal some off concept. I am right here with you. And I, I love, as I love, sometimes, I don't know if you pick up on scripture has a sense of humor, but in verses 9 through 11, God, in order to show Pharaoh, even on a deeper way, that I am, I am the Lord and I am here with you. He allows Pharaoh to set the time for when the plague will be removed. And it, it blows my mind that Pharaoh says, tomorrow. It, if you were covered in frogs and you are standing there and somebody is saying, okay, tell me when you want the frogs to go. Why would you not, leave right here, right now, Moses, take them away right now. No, he says, Tomorrow, like he's content to sit in the frogs for another, you know, however long it was until the next day. I mean, but it shows you how much Pharaoh really believed he was in control. You know, that like, ah, we'll pick any old t- tomorrow, tomorrow is fine, right? It, it, it's amazing to me to see the grace of God. In, and, and then you see how God literally does exactly what he did into the next day. And Pharaoh still hardens his heart. And the last thing, guys, that I also want to point out here is as you see God's power being revealed in a way that teaches us he's after us being in his presence, how he's revealing his presence is there is a lot of time that takes place over the course of chapter eight. And I want to just real quickly show you guys there's been a lot of time that has built up into this point in the book of Exodus. Because we see in, in chapter 7, verse 25, seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. So there's at least seven days between plague one and plague two. And, and if you go back and look at the second plague, the third plague, the fourth plague, it looks like each of them probably lasts two days. That the plague happens, Pharaoh calls Moses and Aaron before him, they talk, they say tomorrow the plague will leave. So each plague takes two days, okay? just, just as a guess. So if each plague took two days and there was a week between the first two, bare minimum, there's two weeks of time that have passed. This is not like just seeing God do one big thing in one moment or doing all the big things in a little tiny window where you just can't comprehend, like, man, God, that was a lot to take in. God has done these miracles over two weeks. You know, once, maybe a coincidence, twice. That's kind of odd. Four times in two weeks—that—that that would get somebody's attention. God is using time as a way to show His people that He desires to bring them into His presence, and and not just in the plagues, guys. Acts chapter seven verse twenty three tells us that I believe it was back in chapter chapter three when when you see Moses that he's. He's addressing the confrontation with the Egyptian in Egypt, and he ends up killing the Egyptian. He has to flee into the wilderness. Moses was 40 when this took place. I don't know if you've seen the movie um, Prince of Egypt. I think it's the animated version of Moses' life. They make Moses look like a teenager. Moses was 40 between the time he was born and the time he fled into the wilderness. And then Acts chapter 7, verse 30 tells us, that when Moses fled into the wilderness from that time to the time that God came to him in the burning bush, another 40 years passed. I, it, it's amazing to me because so, so many of my prayers asking God for deliverance, for restoration from just small things are, are like Immediate. Right? And if God doesn't act immediately, then he must not exist or he must not be working or I must be doing something wrong. So he's not listening to me immediacy. God promised at the birth of Moses, I have brought my deliverer to you. And 40 years passes between Moses finally starts to think something's not right between Egypt and Israel. And then another 40 years passes before God shows up and introduces himself to Moses and tells him, you are the one. That I have chosen to deliver my people. Eighty years, guys, have taken place in just these eight chapters that we have read. Te- technically a little bit longer because Exodus starts out before the book of, before Moses is born. So at least 80 years. And I think it, it is a good and healthy question for us to ask. Why, God? Why, if your people are in slavery, if you're going to deliver them, why are you waiting 80 years? years. And guys, I think what, what the story points us to, because we've seen this and we've talked about this is his goal is not just getting his people out. It is bringing them into his presence. In order to be in somebody's presence, you, you have to have a relationship with them and a relationship takes time. And with an infinite God, how much more so does it, does it take time I think it is amazing that not only do we see this in Exodus, but guys, this this concept of time is used all throughout scripture because God, he shows us where our hearts and where his heart is at in time. We've seen in two weeks, Pharaoh has seen massive, huge miracles of God, wants nothing to do with him. Pharaoh's heart is hard. You've seen 80 years, just in Exodus alone, 80 years of a God who is patient, who is pursuing his people because they have been broken apart from him. They are in slavery and he's going to bring them back to be with him. But guys, this is the story of the entirety of scripture, that ever since the fall of man, the Old Testament walks us through 1,500 years at least of history. The narrative of kings and prophets, of captors and deliverers, showing how God consistently time and time again is pursuing a people that have been broken apart from him so that he could bring them back to life with him. Then what we just celebrated, the birth of, of Jesus Christ. God brings his deliverer, his Messiah on the scene to fulfill everything 1500 years built up to. And he doesn't do it immediately. He comes, he sends Jesus as a baby. And most scholars estimate it's about 30 years before Jesus really, truly begins his public ministry. So God spends 30 years of just letting his Messiah develop the relationship with the people around him. And then from Jesus' ministry to his, his death is another three years, so God is continuing to not just tell the disciples everything and then leave. God spends three years spending every day with his disciples. And even then, they still don't quite get who he is until the very end. And then the rest of the New Testament shows how they, these disciples are living life together. They're praying together. They're, when they are passing on the gospel, they're, they are preaching it, but then they are following up. You see Paul in all of his letters, he was traveling to all these different places to share the gospel, and then he would return back and see how it was going. I mean, God uses time because time reveals where the heart is at and for God he shows us I know you are my people you have been broken away from me in sin and let me show you in in immeasurable ways how I desire you to be right with me and how I have made that possible for you so for us as a church and as the people of God as as individual people of God what that what does that mean for us to respond if God is working to reveal his power and his presence, I think there's, there's two very clear things from, this, from just this chapter. And certainly there's more all throughout scripture. But from right here, I think we, we see the, the importance of relational discipleship. right? That, that God is at work, not just showing off, but revealing who he is to draw people to him. So for us as a a church, may our lives, especially once we have given them to Christ, may our lives reflect a commitment to relational discipleship. I mean, guys, that was all over our mission, our vision, our values, which you're going to hear some ties to, again, in in two weeks, just as we refresh ourselves in what this is. But but this is what, what the Christian life shows us. And so in our daily lives, in our pursuit of God, again, it's not just trying to get you to, to read or to pray, to do things, to check a list, but guys, God has given us ways to pursue him. And if he has shown us throughout time, throughout history, throughout just the ways that he works, that he is after us, his people, may our lives reflect, okay, God, then, then I want I want to be after you. And we see that if our God is also working to reveal himself to the nations, then that is a clear call for us to have as well, that in our pursuit of God, we are also pursuing those around us. And there will be moments of being able to proclaim the gospel to the crowds, and the, but the majority of our interactions may just be building a relationship with somebody over time that we may be able to eventually share who God is and what that looks like with them. I'll tell you, in the, in the six months that I have been here and also working at Blacksburg Transit, I have just now started to get enough, enough, like I would say traction in some relationships with uh, some of my supervisors that they're coming to me and saying, you know, I, I know you're a pastor. Can we go to lunch sometime? Like I've got some deep questions about the church and about God and things, it's just things of that nature. But guys, they did not ask me that on the first week. They've known I've been a pastor for six months, but it took six months of just showing up to work on time as as small as that sounds, when you are understaffed showing up to work at all and showing up to work on time, that's a big deal to somebody. So just showing up and being present, asking them, hey, how are you doing? How are your kids doing? How's your family doing? Six months, and they're saying, you know, you're a pastor. I, I, just, I just now am feeling a little bit comfortable to talk with you about my own experience in the church and things I have questions about. It, it takes time, and it, it is. but they have now seen six months of hopefully they've seen that, man, I have done my best to love them, whatever that has looked like in six months. So we are pursuing our God. We're also pursuing the people around us. And the other thing that I want to point out, too, from this text, I really, truly believe if we're going to live this out well, we have to be a people who Sabbath well, who, who rest. Because when we are confronted with God's power, We realize, man, like I I can't make one frog appear, let alone enough to this to this magnitude. Right. But then I also see, man, if if God's revealing his presence to me and what he wants is for me to be with him, then there must be some precedent of I, I might just have to stop what I'm doing at times to be with God. I mean, this is what you see with God at his creation. Every day he paused and he rested. He gets to the seventh day. He spends an entire day of resting. Guys, what Sabbath rest does is it teaches us, it it trains us literally to stop, to look at what God has done, and to just as God says, declare it to be good. The, the Old Testament understanding of declaring something to be good, it was, a, it was a blessing. It was saying, it is perfect, it is sufficient. Guys, so what we do on Sunday mornings when we come here and we sing and we pray and we fellowship and we study its word, it's a way for us to remember who God is and what he's done and a moment for us without the distractions of the world and everyday life, as, as best as we can, to declare it sufficient. God, this is enough for me, thank you. And then we get to go into the rhythms of our week with the people God has given us interactions with. We get to live life alongside them. And then we come back and we say, God, thank you for who you are. It is enough for me. And then you continue. It's it's a rhythm of what life looks like. And and I believe if we are seeing God revealing his power and his presence to us, we see this this rhythm very present. So, guys, as, as the band comes back up, as we we uh, we reflect this morning, I, I honestly am actually, um, we're going to do something a little bit different for our response time. If we truly see God's power and his presence on display, um, I would encourage you, if you've never heard, there's a book called The Valley of Vision. It's just a collection of prayers um, from church history. Um, man, you, you read it and you realize, I <laughs> I do not pray that deep. Even when I think I'm praying deep, I do not pray that deep. So I wanted to read over us this morning one prayer that hopefully will help us realize, man, God, in light of who you are and your power, in light of what you desire of me to be with you in your presence, um, may we practice this, this pausing to say, God, this is who you are and this is enough for me. So I'll, I will pray this prayer and then we will, uh, we will sing one more worship song. Thy main plan and the end of thy will is to make Christ glorious and beloved in heaven, where he is now ascended, where one day all the elect will behold his glory and love and glorify him forever. Though here I love him but little, may this be my portion at last. In this world thou hast given me a beginning, one day it will be perfected, in the realm above. Thou hast helped me to see and know Christ, though obscurely, to take him, receive him, to possess him, love him, to bless him in my heart, my mouth, my life. Let me study and stand for discipline in all the ways of worship, out of love for Christ and to show my thankfulness to seek and know his will from love, to hold it in love and to daily care for and keep this state of heart. Thou hast led me to place all my nature and happiness in oneness with Christ, in having heart and mind centered only on him, in being like him and communicating good to others. This is my heaven on earth, but I need the force the energy, the impulses of thy spirit to carry me on the way to my Jerusalem. Here it is my duty to be as Christ in this world, to do what he would do, to live as he would live, to walk in love and meekness. Then would he be known. Then would I have peace in death. Father, may this be our heart and our posture towards you. That as you are revealing your power and your presence to us, Lord, may we constantly be in a state of declaring, Father, this is who you are and it is enough for me. And Lord, may we trust you that in in growing and being able to do that, Lord, that you would truly transform us into your image. You would give us the things to do, Father. You would lead us in the direction to reach, to minister, to to do whatever it is you would have us do. Lord, as, as we as a church family seek to, to begin these, these different rhythms of small group discipleship, Lord, where we we want to dive in together with one another to get to, to see your power and your presence more in our lives, Father, to replicate it, to make it known to others. God, may we always be in the habit of still taking the time to say, God, this is who you are, and I declare this to be enough for me. In your holy name we pray. Amen.